0: (laughs) colorful reading that that Jonathan read for us and thank you for doing that it's um it's one of these things that that I love inviting people into the public reading of scripture here at our church and it's uh I view it I was when I was an associate pastor I would always sort of read scripture because you don't preach as often when you're an associate pastor um and it was always a treasure for me and it became more a treasure over time to be able to read the word aloud but as we go through this season Many of you are going to get called and say, would you like to read a strange passage from the book of Leviticus that, that's about wringing the neck of a bird? Um, and yet there's still privilege there. There's still goodness there. And so we're going to explore this Sunday. Now, as many of you know, I went to the Indy 500 two weeks ago on Memorial Day. And they always did this thing at the start of the race called, or the start of practice called the shakedown, which I didn't put together exactly what that was until yesterday. But what happens is they like put together the cars, they all pull, pull, show up to the track. Guy says, okay, you're good to go. All the cars pull out They do one lap at like a moderate speed and then pull right back in. I was like, that is so strange. Why wouldn't you want more practice time right off the bat if everybody else is pulling in? And then I was like, oh, it's like when you're a kid and you put something together that you might test your weight on, that like you just sort of shake it down, shake it, to make sure the pieces are put together correctly, that it can actually like." Go around the track and not fall apart. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, that's what I need for the book of Leviticus. I need a shakedown sermon to figure out um, how do you prepare for this, how do you talk about this, how do you is it's it's sort of a radically sort of different preparation process for me. I'm getting more information about the text than I ever have before. And a lot of the information I would say is also not like why we gather here. Um, why do these things happen? Why do this? And so I was like, you know, there's there's stuff we need to talk about about the structure of the book of Leviticus, which we'll do at some point. And then there's stuff we need to talk about on sort of this, what does it mean to be Christian readers of the book of Leviticus? But I was thinking about that's more like racing, right? What I need first is like a shakedown to see if this thing can actually roll. And if it doesn't roll, what's wrong? And so this Sunday, we're just going to sort of start with chapter one. I'm going to try and focus and work through the first Chapter of this odd and strange and wonderful book. And so the first thing I want to point out is that is that as, if you read the email this week, I pointed this out already. But is that the what we call this book is Leviticus, um, and that that name comes from this idea that this book is written for the tribes of the tribe of Levi, the Levites, to sort of instruct them on how to do sacrifices for the people of Israel. But it's not really that. Because that's only like, they only show up for a very short part of the book. There's a lot of other stuff in the book. And in this one, this first sacrifice that we learned about this burnt offering says that any man, any person, anyone who wants to come and do this, and unlike most of the sacrifices in the book, this one isn't given like a direct cause. It's not like, if you did this, go and do this. This is just sort of a first general sacrifice, anyone, goes out and does this. And so it's not just about the Levites. It's about this sort of speaking this to the people of Israel. How the Israelites are going to practice their faith. So the Hebrew title for the book is Now He Called. And the Hebrews always sort of took their, Jews always took sort of their first title from the first word of the book. The first word for the book of Leviticus is Now He Called. who is Leviticus Leviticus is right after Exodus. Okay. Um, so there's Exodus. Let's see. Exodus still. Leviticus. Thank you. You're welcome, Gary. If yours has pictures, let me know, because that would be good. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's now he called. God has called Moses into the temple. And so this book almost sort of literally picks up from the end Of Exodus, and so we read last week, and and it was in the bulletin, and we missed it this week. But this idea of the Exodus ends with this glory filling this temple, and yet they can't enter it. And Numbers begins with them sort of participating in the life of this temple. And so the book of the Leviticus serves as this hinge of moving from sort of outside this temple, which God is going to reside with His people, to inside that they've, they've constructed this place for God to sort of reside with them, and they're unable to enter into it. But what happens in the book of Leviticus is we're shown how the people are going to enter into God's presence. This is a God who wants to meet with them, who wants to be with them. And so when we talked about Genesis, we talked about how the, the garden is sort of designed like a holy place, like as a temple too. And when we walk through the construction of the tabernacle in the book of Numbers, that that too is sort of designed like a garden in the world where God can reside with his people. And so we have, when the temple is being constructed, that there are seven speeches that, that Moses, that he gives to God. Seven being how long it took, you know, to make the world. So there's seven speeches he has with God. There are um, seven days in which he is talking to them about. Uh, the last sort of thing is the Sabbath that he instructs them on on how they're going to Sabbath in this temple. Um, and then he uh, talks about this creative sort of order. And so that, that seven, that creative order is sort of built into the life of the temple. And what the tabernacle, tabernacle is what I mean, um, is on earth is sort of this place of creation and of order. Now, this is, this is a... This is a weird thing, but Ken and Betty got me this book, which is not a, a small book for Christmas two years ago. Um, they had asked Kelly, what does Matt want for Christmas? And she was like, he's been wanting this book for a long time. Um, it's, not, it's not a very cheap book, but if you could get him that, that would be wonderful. And they actually did. And this is a very, very nerdy book. Um, uh, I don't know where picked the- picked f- it up, it's heavy. It's heavy, yes, and the footnotes you know, start like here, So there's a lot of footnotes to this book as well. But one of the questions that Charles Taylor, his name is on the front, the book is titled The Secular Age. If you want to read it, I highly recommend it. Um, <laughs> there's also a smaller reading guide called How to Read a Secular Age by someone else, which is helpful. Um, but one of the things that Charles Taylor seeks to ask in his book is, how is it 500 years ago you would struggle not to believe in God? But the assumption that God existed was just prevalent. And yet today, 500 years later, the idea that you would believe in God, that God would be real in some very tangible ways, almost seems foreign. What changed in that sort of 500-year period from where it actually took something to not believe in God to something, it taking something to sort of move in to believe in God? And so what he comes up with, I don't know why I still have the kids' church thing up there. Sorry. Uh... Is is this idea of that in the ancient world, people lived what they would call porous selves, and so if you're familiar with a sponge, sponges are often considered porous, and in the ancient world, people had this porous self that sort of could be um, inflected by lots of different meaning, right? Could be inflected by demons, the sickness could be something else. This could be there was all sorts of a complex web of relationships that you lived in in the ancient world what happened in the modern world is we've created sort of a buffered self, one that sort of inflects all that meaning off, or to the extent that it happens, we have explanations for it. We don't really worry about any of those things. And he says that, that perhaps this move toward the, the buffered self is part of the reason on why we live in a world where it's harder to believe in God, because you don't see yourself as the intersection between different spirits and causes and beliefs, and, and sort of like, this is why this is happening, because this god over here is upset, or this, or even the ancient Israelite imagination has this idea of people as this realm in which things intersect and come into. And so he says that we've, we've sort of moved into this place of buffering ourselves off from all these things that project meaning. The second thing that goes along with this is, is something that C.S. Lewis talked about, is that the modern world, um, the ancient world sought to like, help to be with nature and to learn from nature and to subsist with nature. The modern world sort of seeks to tame nature, and when we can't tame it, we have sort of things like augmented reality, which is uh, like Google Glass, if you're familiar with that, or uh, virtual reality. We tend to sort of say if, if nature isn't gonna co-op with our, cooperate with our desires and wishes, we should develop something where the world responds the way that we would like the world to respond. Now, this is all a weird introduction to this first chapter of the book of Vigas. But what I'm trying to say is that there's perhaps a connection between why it's harder to believe in God and why we don't sacrifice cows anymore. That we've divorced our lives from sort of the practical realities of life and death, of food systems. I buy chicken. Already we had chicken thighs on Friday. Already quartered, uh, cut, in a saran wrapped thing, and I just bring it home and cook it, I have really no idea of what happened in the meantime. I've seen one chicken butchered, that was enough for me. But, but we sort of push off this life and death moment into different realms. Or even this is that most of us, we anticipate or hope our lives go something like this. We live healthy, we get sick at some point, normally very old, hopefully, and then we quickly just sort of die in some sort of realm in which nobody's really bugged by us. And so death too has sort of been, not just animal death, but human death has sort of been shelved off. And so we live in this world in which these things don't really happen for us. And so the idea that meaning can be viewed in sacrifice, what does it mean to spill blood? What does it mean to open up life? Is just something that doesn't occur for us. It's something that rarely happens in our modern world. I mean, for most people, the first sort of death they actually remember is that of a grandparent. There's no intimate community. There's no place where these people are living in houses. There's no place near. And while some of this, this is not to say, well, all the modern world is bad. But it's to say that some of these advancements have moved certain things to the realm that might give you an imagination that God is there, that we sort of have passed off on. We don't live in sort of a natural sort of sphere anymore. We live in sort of air-conditioned, quiet lives, immune from all these things. And so when you think about what does the buffered self look like, it's the person who gets to live in Phoenix but never experiences the heat, which is not to pick on Phoenix, but that's like a metaphor for the whole thing, is that we live divorced from the realities that surround us. So what the book of Leviticus is going to do, and clearly in this first chapter does, is it pushes us right into this place. If anyone... Wants to come and bring a sacrifice to the Lord. This is how they shall do it, and it's a it's a very as Jonathan read for us. It's a very um, doesn't cut very many corners in its presentation of how this goes. Anyone wants to bring this sacrifice, and in this first sacrifice, the 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 addition that Jonathan read adds. Some words because it's it's not quite clear what this first sacrifice is for, this burnt offering. It does use this word in chapter or verse 4 that it would be like an atonement for you, but it doesn't say that you've sinned or done anything. And so it's like it's kind of a thanks offering, and if you see where the burnt offering happens in the rest of the Old Testament, it does happen in moments of thanks. It's kind of like a God, please pay attention to me offering. This is how Saul uses it at one point. God, I haven't bugged you that much lately. Is a burnt offering, please pay attention to me now. Um, it works with guilt. There are times in which guilt is associated with the burnt offering, but this offering doesn't really give a lot of reasons to it. But the book of Leviticus starts off with this offering that's sort of like, here's your general offering should you come and bring one. And so we'll walk through it just shortly. Um, there's this art part in that, like, I don't like to use shock value when I preach, like, just to be like, Wake up, it's blood and guts. Unfortunately, that's the whole book, um, or a lot of the book. And so like, we'll touch on some themes that, that uh, aren't great for the stomach if you're, if you're eating after. Um, but they're in the Bible and so that's what we got. So we're just gonna roll with it. Um, but if you're offering from the herd, you're supposed to offer a male without defect. And, and one of the first things is, is, is if you noted that Jonathan read, he said all of chapter one. And I was like, well, I can shorten it. We can just talk about the herd because the flock and the birds are pretty much the same thing. But what's important about why there's herd, why there's flock, which is sort of the sheep and the goats, and why there's birds is because it's a socioeconomic, like if you're rich, you can offer something from your herd. But not everybody has access to a herd. So if you're not that rich, you can probably get like a goat. You can probably get like sheep. And so that's how we're going to do this offering for you. And if you're like pretty poor, and and this is interesting because this is the one Mary offers when Jesus was born, you can get like some birds. And you can offer that. And what's amazing about each of these sacrifices from from the like, this is a big, I mean, cows are big. Um, to the tiny bird is it doesn't say and God was more pleased with the bird or with the cow and then he was slightly less pleased with the, with the sheep and then like look you, you're just phoning it in if you went and bought a bird um, <laughs> but God will take it but come on work your way up to a cow um, it actually is they all result in the same thing that it's a fragrant offering to the Lord that, that the smoke rises up to God So it's not like there's this the cow is better than the goat and the goat is better than the birds. It's actually that this is supposed to sort of level the playing field for the people of Israel. Anyone who feels called, any person who feels called or invited into the sacrifice can hopefully bring something. And not only that, chapter 2 goes to grain offerings and stuff like that. But this burnt sacrifice has this sort of equalizing playing field. We'll just walk through the cow one, though, since... We only have so much time, and it's pretty similar as it goes through. Um, You're supposed to take one that's sort of without defect. And this is, we talk about Jesus is um, sinless, and he comes and offers himself up as a ransom for us, which is, I think, a good way to sort of Christologically read this passage, and we'll get into why why we should read Leviticus Christologically and not a shakedown sermon. But um, that's to say is that this should be a costly thing. So if you have cows, if you give birth to many cows, not you, but your cows do, um, you have many cows, you may go like, well, this one's kind of limp and lame, and so it's time for me to offer or burn sacrifice. This This is good stewardship. I should take the limp and lame one and bring him to the temple and offer him. But actually what God says is, it should cost you something. This is also why wild game doesn't count. Merle's not here as bad as it is for the honors. But you can't bring wild game as your bird sacrifice because it doesn't come from your herd. It's not your possession. It's just something out there. It's supposed to come from something you have, that something belongs to you. It's supposed to have cost you something. And not only is it something that's supposed to have cost you something, it's supposed to be costly. Take one without defect or without bad marking and offer it before the lord and so you pick this one and then you bring it to the temple and it's supposed to be a male without defect and you present it at the entrance to the temple one of the amazing parts about the book of leviticus is that it assumes that god wants to meet with his people that god wants to be there you bring it to the entrance of where god meets you where god has designed to sort of meet with his people this is no small thing. This is God is in this holy place here on earth, and when you want to offer the sacrifice, you go to it. And not only that, these, these, these sacrifices and things we'll read about, it also says that this religion isn't quite human invented, but is God spoken into the world. You're not a herdsman who's like, you know, we have this God of rain that we would like to appease, and we don't know how, but let's burn some things and sacrifice some things and see if it works. Um... This is God spoken out to his people, that this is the way that you should do this. And so you bring it to the entrance of this meeting, and you don't bring it in. Um, there's a reason why it's sort of domesticated animals, because wild animals would be like, you bring wild animals to a crowded place, is not a good thing. But, but they're domesticated animals at the front of the temple, and they bring them there. And so you bring this, and then you place your hand on it. Or it's it, sort of in the in the the Hebrew will say that you lay heavy on it to some degree. It's a fascinating passage because this is where like I read and read and read and everybody's like nobody knows what this means. Here's three options. Here's five options. Here's four options. Here's three. Um, I went through that a couple times this week, but what I finally sort of came to is first is that it symbolizes ownership. You're laying your hand on this animal and sort of giving it over because it is. Your animal. You've brought this thing before the Lord. It symbolizes ownership. And the other thing that sort of becomes clear as you look at this word and the way it functions in the Bible is that you're sort of connecting with it. You're sort of building some sort of connection. And whether that's sort of, that when this thing is sacrificed, it becomes you so that you don't die because of sin That's one interpretation. Or whether it becomes sort of the blood that you're going to sort of offer, which is um, going to be placed and burned up, is is that sort of like your ascent as it turns into smoke to God as well? It's very hard to say what's actually going on here, but I think it's a very important passage, and it suggests that this is something happening between this. One of the commentators suggests that this whole thing is no hands-off affair. Where it's like, man, this would be great if, like, oh, it's hands-off came from this. Because, like, it really is not a hands-off thing. Because the next thing the person bringing the animal has to do is actually um, slit its neck themselves. The priest doesn't do it. So you bring the animal to present, and you're the one who sort of unleashes its blood. Now, there's this thing about blood in the Bible that I think we miss. is that, like, we say that we're covered in the blood of Jesus, or that, like, nothing but the blood. Um, And these are all important truths. But what the Bible says about blood is that it's releasing the life of the thing. And so if you say that you're covered in the blood of something, what you mean is you're covered in the life of that thing. I think this is fascinating for when we think about what God did for us in Jesus and we say we're covered by the blood. Because oftentimes we think that that means that we're covered in his sacrificial sort of death, which is true. But we're also covered in the life he lived. To release the blood it is to release the life out. So it's not just that this is sort of releasing sort of the blood that becomes the sacrifice, but it's also releasing the life, and, and you could almost say the character and the, the, the what this thing is. And so the person bringing it does that, and they release that to atone. And the um, they begin to sort of the priest brings the blood and sort of sprinkles it on the altar or slaps it. There's various different ways to interpret this one too. And and that's sort of to symbolize one is that after Noah's flood, that taking life is a very cautious thing. And so the first thing to sort of do after this is to say that like, this is something done for God, that this is not on you, but it's sort of just being pushed to who and where God is. And so, after the blood is sort of placed on the on the offering, it um, splashes against the sides of the altar. You were supposed to you were to skin the burnt offering, and cut it into pieces. First, there is no meal with this one. Men in the offerings, there's this meal, but because this one everything is burned, there, there's nothing to. There's no feast you get to have after. The skin goes to the priest, which I guess. Um, the, the sort of thought is they get some sort of wage out of doing an offering like this. So they get the skin of the animal, but the rest of it is cut up and burned. And what happens is there's very specific instructions on how it's cut up. And if you really want to get into it, we can talk about it later, is it almost seems like in the hierarchy of like what a body is in ancient Israel is the way in which it's burned towards the hierarchy to the way the tabernacle is built there's the outer parts moving towards the inner parts that it's burned in a way that sort of represents that you burn what's periphery to burning what's central and that sort of is the way that this burning works and it's piled up there and it's offered up to God and this whole thing is burned now, now this is always a fun one for preachers because it's like it's like let's all after the service go off and burn the offering this Sunday. Um, you know, you've brought something to God and what the guy does is he torches it all up. Um, now, you know that this is part of the deal when you do it, but it's, an, but it's a fascinating thing of that I brought this offering and we're going to burn the whole thing. But what it says is that this one is a burnt offering, a food offering, and it makes an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The sort of the culmination of this. And in the, in the, in the Greek word for this sort of, or the Hebrew word for this sort of burnt offering is, is holocaust, which is where we get the term holocaust from, which is, a, uh, I think, an interesting connection to what's costly being burned up. But this, this holocaust is to incinerate everything. It's not just there to sort of, um, to be like, let's just burn this thing but it's to be made into smoke it's to be made into aroma and in the Hebrew imagination at this moment from Sinai and other scenes, smoke becomes that which rises up to God essentially what you're saying is let's take this thing which I've laid my hand heavy on and let's bring it to God and turn it into smoke so that it will rise up to him It's interesting in the ancient Near Eastern religions at the time, there's this idea that the gods need to be fed. That doesn't bleed into the book of Hebrews at all, or Leviticus at all. You're not feeding God, but you're offering something up, a life that ascends into the presence in smoke. And so this is all burned and incinerated for that purpose. And so it it builds up something to God and sort of moves as smoke up towards the heavens. To become a smoke is sort of the theme of what Paul is talking about when he says that we should present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Or the book of Ephesians says that to be imitators of God, therefore, and, and, and dearly love children and live a life of love as Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. The challenge... For us, is not to bring a cow anymore and offer it on the altar. The challenge for people who know who Christ is and the life that he lived is to bring ourselves somewhat as something that's going to be offered up as smoke to God, as an aroma, as a fragrance that sort of builds and reaches up to the heavens. In this society and in this world, in, in ancient Near Eastern religion, it becomes this process by which we identify with this animal, this sheep, this bird, to sort of visualize that for us, to show us how that might be. But what it becomes after we know who Christ is and how Christ came and lived and died for us is that one has gone before us who has become as smoke for us, who has become sort of the sacrifice that we've laid our hands on and who sort of ignites himself up towards heaven but merely doesn't leave it there, but through our hands we participate, participators in that sacrifice the same way that this happens here. We don't replace that sacrifice, which is good news for Christians. Christ becomes that sacrifice for us. We're not called to do that better or to become higher on that, but to accept that Jesus has done that. But through our connection, through our laying on of hands, supposed to open up space for us too to also ascend to God. Let us pray. God, when anyone comes to bring an offering or to bring something costly, whether it come from their herd, their flock, or some birds, They're to bring it and open up its life for you. Through the laying on of hands and through sort of the claiming of this, that life they open up is supposed to to symbolically represent their life as well. To become as smoke is perhaps not for us. We follow one who through his connection with us, through humanity, through becoming human, forsaking all that made him God and becoming a servant among us and emptying himself. Through connection with him, through that sacrifice, we're invited in to assent to you. May we... Become your dear children who act in love as he loved us. And he gave himself up as a fragrant offering for us and a sacrifice to God. Amen. Uh,